0: Hi, and welcome to the 32nd Womanthology podcast. My name is Fiona Tatton and I'll be your host. Womanthology is a digital magazine and professional community powered by female energy and ingenuity. We champion equal recognition and reward for everyone, sharing opportunities, ideas, and a deep pool of collective wisdom, supporting each other to be unstoppable. The theme of the show today is women of colour. I will be joined by Dr Hitasha Ripani, consultant respiratory physician at the University Hospital Southampton NHS Foundation Trust. Inesh Santos, our associate editor, is off on her holidays, so I'll be sharing the details of the new stories in the written issue. A quick reminder that you sign up for the Womanthology newsletter by filling in your details on the front page of our website. That's womanthology.com. You can also join our LinkedIn community by visiting LinkedIn.com forward slash company forward slash You will find us on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook. Welcome to the Womanthology Podcast. We have Dr. Hitasha Rupani who is a consultant respiratory physician at the University Hospital Southampton NHS Foundation Trust. And she has a subspecialty interest in severe asthma. Have I got all that right? Yes, you have Fiona,
1: absolutely perfect.
0: Wonderful. Well, welcome to the podcast. How are you doing today?
1: I'm really well, thank you.
0: Great to be chatting with you. I will dive straight in and I'm going to start by asking you about your educational background and career
1: to date. What is
0: your story?
1: Well, I should have said thank you for inviting me to do this, so thank you. But I guess a bit about me. I'm a consultant in Southampton at the moment, but I grew up in India. I was born in, in Bombay, and one thing I remember about my parents very clearly is the huge emphasis on education. They felt that getting me and my sister what they felt was the best education that they could at the time would, in their words, set us up for life. And they really pushed us to, to work hard and be ambitious. And when I was 11, they sent me off to an international school, which actually was one of the best times and years of my life. I have some really, really great memories. But what it then meant was that was almost a stepping stone for me to to go to university anywhere in the world. We could just pick almost every country would come to our career fair. And so we could go anywhere and and pick careers. I came to Southampton and um, I did my training there. I stayed in the region. I liked the South, so I stayed around here. And I guess the other slightly different part of my career was when I became a consultant, I uh, had this fantastic clinical director. Um, I was a consultant in another trust in Portsmouth, and my clinical director at the time was fantastic. She still sometimes calls me her experiment because I was the first female consultant she'd appointed, which she wanted to experiment and do a sort of a flexible hybrid working model. So I was a full-time consultant, but I worked flexible hours, which meant I could drop my kids to school and pick them up from school but that also meant that I had to be really regimental and organized in between to make sure everything was done and then catch up with a lot of stuff later on at home which I did and and I think really that gave me the ability to to do all the clinicals and things I wanted to do on site and be there and, and and interact and integrate and build services build relationships and networks but at the same time be at home when I needed to be at home and so I think that was an amazing opportunity for me and and, and obviously now I've, I've moved to a different trust but my children are older and it's it's fitting a bit more traditionally now i suppose i suppose i think having that flexibility when my kids were younger was probably one of the best opportunities i have had as an early consultant
0: are you finding that's starting to be adopted more broadly
1: yeah i think she recognized the time as well that we need women in the job in, in medical school there's lots of female trainees but then they somehow get filtered out as you get higher up in the the consulting grades. And we've seen that it's not just in medicine, it's other specialties as well. There used to be, if you remember, now there's more and more. And so actually to be able to um, adapt to that change, we need to adapt in the way we work. And if I could finish all of my clinical work within that certain time period, she didn't see any reason why I had to still hang around and be there and I could not just leave and, and go home. And I think others are now doing that and adopting that and i think we've always worried that if we're not on site or if we're not physically there or if we work less than full time we won't be able to be part of the team but actually you know i think covid has shown us with all of our other virtual working that it is possible and, and i think the flexibility actually brought out the best in me and I was able to work and, and do more because I was offered that. And
0: if we're trying to imagine you on a day-to-day basis, and I'm sure that there's no one standard day that we can imagine, but if we were trying to get a sense of the things that you're doing, what sort of things in your role would you be doing?
1: In my clinical job? Yes. Okay, so as you said, I am a respiratory consultant and I work in the, with the asthma team in Southampton, so, I have days when I do severe so asthma clinics and we see patients from around the region. So, going all the way down to, towards Dorchester, they come, they see us either virtually or face to face. Isle of Wight, Jersey. I've had a few patients invite me around for tea in Jersey. We provide what we call specialist input, uh, systematic assessments, and things for these patients. But also, I, I do ward work. At the moment, I'm on the wards, we do a ward round and, and we all our inpatients. And then I do Things that sort of, I guess, slightly outside of work. I'm involved with the, with the BTS, as you know, the British Thoracic Society. And, and I'm also involved with another piece of work, which is a condensed 18-month piece of work um, called the Accelerated Access Collaborative, which has taken up many, many hours of my time. But, you know, it's something I really enjoy and, and I spend a considerable amount of time doing that in a day as well. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about that. So this is about driving innovation. Yeah, so the the AAC stands for the Accelerated Access Carabitin. It came about because they realized that we do all this great stuff in the NHS. We have this great research as well. We've got these great products, new medication that's approved by NICE. But they realized that sometimes it takes a while for these newer things to be adopted into clinical practice. And that might be because pathways need to be changed. Awareness needs to be improved. People need to be brought together to to be told about it and work together. And so they said, why don't we just bring everyone together? put them all into a room together or in a meeting together, give them a set of targets or they can decide their targets, support them in redesigning pathways and and see what happens. And actually do what That's a fantastic idea. You're bringing all of the tools that you need rather than having to say, for example, go to B&Q on a Monday and a Tuesday and then a Thursday and Friday, the week after, and then week after that, just get everything that you need in one go, put everyone together. And we've been doing it for about 12 months now. we have, regular meetings, and they've given us a lot of support to to work with clinicians across the country, the academic health science network supporting us, and and we've been able to change pathways, and I'm hoping for the better. We've been able to engage with patients to help us do that as well, because they're the important voice, they're telling us what they need. We've worked across primary, secondary, and specialist care to bring everyone together. In in this example, is accelerate the, the use of asthma biologics which was what they felt was just taking too long, not enough patients were being able to access them. So hopefully with this piece of work, that's going to improve over the next few years.
0: You mentioned pathways. So say somebody had asthma, for example, then there would be normally a a, a route that they might follow in the NHS. That's the different parts of a hospital or somebody might visit
1: yeah so if what was happening was that patients would say have asthma and we found that some patients their asthma is not so well controlled and for various reasons it's not really picked up that it's not so well controlled and it continues to impact their life and then if they might come into hospital a few times but they might continue to have symptoms and, and continue to have hospital admissions and continue to have what we call asthma attacks And then at some point then be referred to, say, a specialist asthma service. And actually that can take years. And this is work done by Asthma UK. It says it takes almost five to 10 years sometimes. We did exactly the same thing. And we found that actually in two thirds of people, it can be up to two or three years so quite a long time. And if we can bring that time down, our patients benefit greatly. So we've tried to work with primary care. We're going to work with secondary care and just try and raise awareness make it easier for people to do things to say, Oh, you know what? I can give you electronic tools to use. We work with patients to to help them raise awareness amongst themselves. And and I'm hoping that with all of this and a lot of other innovative stuff that I'm not going to mention, because maybe not everyone wants to hear about all of the little things, but actually doing all of that, I think it'll change the way asthma biologics are used over the next few years and more patients will be able to access what they, they themselves term life-changing treatments.
0: Is it okay as all these innovations roll out over the next few years for us to keep speaking with you? We'll keep in touch to find out how everything's going, if that's okay. Yeah. Amazing. We touched on the British Thoracic Society a little bit before. Tell us about that and how you got involved.
1: So I first got involved with the British Thoracic Society when I was a a trainee. They have what they call specialist advisory groups, where they have a group of people that get together for each disease area. So they have one, say, for example, for asthma, for COPD, for industrial lung diseases. All the different lung diseases have a small group and they call them their core group and they're there to to give advice, to engage with other stakeholders, to support the the society in any any activity relating to that disease area nationally and and also internationally. so I had applied to be on the committee as a trainee, and then I applied again to be on the committee. And the reason I do these things is I spend some time, like all of like others, or perhaps not like others. You think I, I wish I could do this, or I wish this was done this way, or I wish I could have been part of that group, and then I would have said this, or I wish I could have influenced this in this way, or I wish they would do that. And I spend so long saying, well, why don't they do this, and why don't they do? That? And I'm, actually, you know. I could help make it happen rather than sitting back and saying, why doesn't somebody else do it? I can try and, and help support it or drive it forward myself or with a group of people. And so I applied to be on the committee thinking, actually, if I'm part of the group that makes these changes happen, then I can influence the change. And, and stuck with it. And I got involved in any way that I could. So every time they said that, they wanted to volunteer for something or they needed something reviewing or they wanted stakeholder presence in a committee, I volunteered that actually, if I'm involved, then I can't sit back and say, well, why didn't they do that? Or, and also I would understand the reasons behind certain decisions and and certain policies because I was there being part of it. I could then understand that better. It's a great society. It's worked really hard during COVID to provide support for patients. For clinicians, we've worked to create patient-facing staff to, to to help our clinicians with decision-making tools. So, yeah, I have a lot of respect and I will hopefully continue to support the BTS moving forward.
0: Well, I think they're very lucky to have you on board as well. So what does intersectionality mean to you as a woman of colour in Britain today?
1: So, so I'm a woman and, and, and I have come from a different ethnic background. But I guess for me personally and my own experiences, and I'm on top of my own experiences, I've never thought of it as being a barrier. And I haven't seen others uh, putting up barriers in front of me because of this. And I know that people have a range of experiences and I have a lot of respect and I try and mentor people to help them through their, their different challenges. But I guess for me, I haven't seen it as a barrier. And if I look back and I think, well, when my children were young, I, I chose to work flexibly, but that was my choice. And I was supported to that. There was times when I was doing my research where I couldn't for example, go for all of those meetings around the world and network and form those links because I was at home. I remember I went for an interview at the Medical Research Council for a fellowship and my son was only three months old and my mum my had to fly from India to, to take care of him while I went for this. But I didn't see that as a barrier. I saw it as something that I wanted to do and I chose to have my children when I did. And yes, I couldn't attend all the meetings and yes, I can be part of all of the committees. But as soon as I could, I, I then started to put myself forward. It comes down to your personal perception of your own abilities and, and your ability to engage with people and form those relationships. And I think speaking as a woman, what I have recognized over the last few years is that we have different styles of leadership. We have different skills as well. And I try and embrace those. So rather than trying to be like my male colleagues who are fantastic, I have my own leadership skills. Skills, my own mentorship skills and I think that people are recognizing that and we're not all the same as leaders within the NHS as a woman of color I embrace my my differences and I don't see them as barriers
0: and I think diversity of thought is so important and if we get everybody on board and we have an inclusive approach then different people's different thoughts if we bring those together then it's the best of all worlds I would hope yeah, exactly. It's,
1: it's, it's accepting that, that there are differences of, of differences in ways people approach things, different differences in ways that people also deal with things and different life situations, people might have different responses. I've, I've done things a certain way in my career, being a woman, I couldn't work for a few years because I was a maternity, but I didn't see that as a barrier. And I, I, that was a choice that I made. And yes, I had colleagues that went ahead in their careers and did more, but, that was the choice that I wanted to make to be and have that family. And now I'm working to be parts of teams and drive things forwards in any way that I can. So Hitasha, what else in your job over and above your clinical work, do you also do? So Fiona, I'm also really interested in, in the academic side. Of the research and I've, I might have mentioned before in the interview I, I did do some research and I did a PhD some years ago and then I, I got to a point in in my my career where I felt I needed someone like a role model I needed somebody a female academic that was also a really good clinician and had all these other skills I had this sort of person in my head and I couldn't find a physical role model for that and I think I was younger I knew fewer people it's not it's not a disrespect to anyone else but I was talking I remember talking to my supervisor say who is there a role model that I can be like and they couldn't give me any examples and and so I went down a certain path in my career and then I one day I said you know what if I can't find that role model I need to be that sort of role model for the next next generation and I need to be able to to try and combine doing research with doing my clinical job and being that mum to my children and do all those things and to show other trainees that actually it is also possible that they that they can do it as well and this is why I try really hard to to maintain my my research interests and to engage in in the academic side of respiratory medicine it around asthma. And I've been really lucky. My trust, Southampton recently had this new scheme where they're not gifting. I had to go through quite a rigorous application process, but uh, giving the consultants allocated time to do research. And I've been able to get that through. So I want to be be able to show my trainees now that you can do these different things and you can still do all the clinical work. Be at home with your kids at half past three and then do some research as well and try and bring that together. And I'm really hopeful that I could be that sort of role model that I wasn't able to find eight, 10 years ago for myself.
0: Well, you're on the podcast now. So what more <laughs> of a role model does anybody need than that, would I say? <laughs> Radio, podcast, it's all it's all happening. So I'm going to wrap up by asking you uh, what is coming up next for you? What are you looking forward to? What are you excited about? It can be in work, out of work whatever's going on in life that you're excited about?
1: Well, I'm most excited that we are going to hopefully be able to do some traveling again later on this year. I can't wait to travel, but you know, I think in work, I've said to you, it's, it's these, I've been given these new opportunities to do a bit more research. I've got some really exciting research coming up. My, uh, Team, our asthma team in Southampton is, is really developing at the moment. And that's really exciting. The AAC work that I'm doing is coming to a, an official close in April. And it'll be really exciting to see the outputs of that. And I'm, I'm looking forward to getting feedback from teams across the country about how it's helped them with their own asthma pathways. And then ongoing work with, with the British Suppressive Society, I think with the, the sort of new asthma guidelines and things being involved in that. There's so many things that I could keep going and I won't because this is the end but you know really just to thank you for for inviting me well that's absolutely great so I just wanted to say Katasha, thank
0: you it's been the greatest pleasure to speak with you and if it's all right I think I asked it earlier but I'll ask it again if it's all right for us to keep in touch with you moving forward so we can find out all about all the innovation work that you're driving forward all the research all the stuff that you're doing and follow your progress
1: Yeah, yeah absolutely that would be most welcome
0: Well, you just take care, and I'm just slipping in a thank you to everybody in the NHS as well for all the the amazing work that you're doing as well. So, uh, yeah, thank you so much. No, thanks, Fiona. Whilst our lovely associate editor, Inesh Santos, is off on her holidays, I'm filling in for her, and I'm here to tell you about our new Women of Colour written issue. Stories include Suki Fuller, storyteller, advisor, futurist and mentor, shares her journey from engineering and law student to intelligence analyst and tech champion. She also tells us about her roles on the advisory boards of Tech London Advocates and Global Tech Advocates. Barbara Mills QC discusses her work as co-chair of the Bar Council's Race Working Group and a key research report that's been produced highlighting the way the profession must evolve to continue to drive inclusion. Erica Brodnock, PhD candidate and research officer at London School of Economics and co founder of tech company CAMI, tells us about her research into the barriers faced by women of colour seeking to raise finance in the startup space. Sandra Kerr, CBE, Race Equality Director at Business in the Community, outlines the work she's been doing alongside colleagues and other stakeholders to drive implementation of ethnicity pay gap reporting. Finally, Grace Monoflu, MBE, shares her work championing inclusion and community engagement for the Crown Prosecution Service. Do check out our website, ormentology.co.uk, to read the full stories. And as Inesh would say, and that is all from me. She will be back next time sadly that's all we have time for this episode thank you so much for listening and remember if you want to support what we do then share the link to the show on social media and follow the show your feedback is really important so please do rate and review the show in your podcast app join us for the next episode where we'll be celebrating international day of women and girls in science